should probably get started as soon as sure, possible. Sure. Jim, are you ready? I'm fucking kidding! I swear it! You want to fight? like action films, sexy stuff. One critic called them European. I thought they were shit. I believe she can help me find someone I'm looking for. Who is it? Someone who can explain why my wife was murdered. I don't have wheels in my car. <laughs> okay. That's one thing you should know about me. Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us, such a special guest, such an oh, yeah. amazing guest. Oh, yeah. Of course, you know him from his work on the shiznit.co.uk. <laughs> you know him at Clearance, is it Clearance Bin Review? ClearanceBinReview.com. Yeah. Uh, he's written a few things for Chud. He, he's an academic. He's written. So he's, I, I believe you've done a, you've, you've actually, you've done a presentation on. Nicholas Whining. Oh no, no, you did that presentation on Doctor Who. No, I did, and I did do one on Refn. Okay, and, uh, that's at a conference. Be my thesis, yeah, uh, for school, yeah. So uh, all around raconteur, Christopher Olson. Hi, everybody. Also old, old also someone I've known for a while. Yes, so it's yes. uh, it's nice to it's always nice to see you, Chris. Yes, it's very nice to see you as well. And we are going to be talking about Nicholas Whining Refn. Oh, Patrick, I'm overjoyed to talk about yeah? this week's Danish delight. Mm-hmm. I, I think he. Yeah. I think he would love that I referred to him as, as like a pastry or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing about his movies is they're not very cheesy, um, <laughs> no. which is sad. But uh, um, I, I, I imagine this podcast will not go on as long as the last Danish filmmaker we covered, Lars von Trier. <laughs> <laughs> that well, episode was not to have out. Kurt Halfyard on board. Not that right, we don't yeah. love him, but. Now, he's actually at the door right now out in the rain. We didn't let him in, though, because he, he just drags things out too long. But um, True. I don't know. Do you have any uh, business to take care of, Jim? Well, let's just mosey right along to the What We Watched segment. always like the guests to go first on uh, what we watched uh what, what have you seen recently oh well, i've been i've been watching a lot of stuff that's been uh, assigned for school because um i'm in a media and cinema studies program so we watch a lot of films and television so i've been watching a lot of adventure time for one thing because i've been yeah. i'm working about that yeah and what, uh, what, what class is that for whimsy uh, 101 no it's a class on um <laughs> uh new media studies mm-hmm. and uh i'm looking at the character of uh bimo as uh, an example of a lot of the philosophies that go into new media studies, because she highlights, or it, or whatever you want to refer to it as, highlights the fluidity of gender and uh, identity. And there's this this theory about uh, it's called the networked uh, the networked self, which is very complex. But BMO kind of highlights that as well. Um, so I'm working on a paper about that. But then I've also I'm in a class on the uh, sexual revolution in film. 
So I had for this week, or, well, for the the week when I watched all this stuff, uh, we are talking about interracial romance. Uh, so we watched um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I find. I mean, I understand why it's sort of regarded as a classic film, but I, I find it very problematic. Why, why, why is it regarded as a classic film? Uh, well, I think it's very, it's a landmark in terms of uh, okay, race so relations just, just yeah. because of how it portrayed the relationship between Sidney Poitier's character and, and um, I forget the actress's name, Kath, she's, she's Catherine Hepburn's niece who plays her daughter in the film. Um, but I, I find it very problematic in a lot of ways because... Um, the the relationship doesn't feel genuine to me. It just feels like this this sort of privileged white girl who is having a uh, you know her her safe rebellion with this with this black man who happens to also be a doctor and very well respected. Right. And uh, the way the film ends with Spencer Tracy sort of delivering this monologue on on race relations, it just feels like the the whole white savior. Complex. I don't think thing. there's any movie where there's a monologue about race relations at the end that's, that I would that I would like. Oh, wait, May, wait. Do the right thing. Is that a monologue on race relations at the end? I think maybe it is. I think you could argue. For that. Okay, yeah. do the right thing is the only one. Only Spike Lee can get away with that. Well, yeah, because yeah. only he can be didactic and <laughs> and delicious at the same time. Yes. Um, or Sam Peckett yeah. from the Quantum Leap episode where he was a Ku Klux Klan member. Oh, really? Yeah. He was a member where he's a Klansman? Yeah. <laughs> How did that episode not just end immediately? How did that episode not like, – he found the body. Like he woke up, whatever, whoever's body, and he looked in the closet and there was just a bunch of like white hoods and stuff. And he like <laughs> – he, he looked on like the person's bookmark websites and was like, oh, geez. <laughs> and, and like why did he just, like, just become a drifter? Well, I didn't, I've never seen Quantum Leap, but I, I imagine that if I was – like realize as a Klansman, I would just like leave that life behind, and, I, and oh, what happened? To, I don't well, know. He, he, has to, one day. he has to save the person. He has to save the person. He, yeah, he has that's to right the whole the premise. Wrong. Yeah. He has to yeah, right he has, the wrong. He's jumping through time, and whenever he leaps into someone's body, he has to sort of right a wrong that that has been either done to them or that they have done in their own lives. So. Are you telling me this is the Quantum Leap, the show that all nerds love, is basically just touched by an angel? Essentially, <laughs> yes, and it even had a very like. Because I used to watch it a lot, and yeah. the ending was uh, there was a very religious overtone to it. Actually, <laughs> it's sort of like you know, it was sort of the, the proto Lost. In oh yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's where my mind went to. Yeah, it sort of sets it up with especially science. the final episode. Yeah, exactly, and then and then it sort of pulls the rug out, and it's all about faith. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's lame. But then, um, yeah. Other than that, I, I watched um, Coffee. Uh, for class, uh, the Pam Greer classic, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I did watch one new thing. I watched This Is the End. That a lot. I, I enjoyed it a lot as well. I uh, I thought it was very funny. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's one of those movies that it's like thank God they're funny because that could be so insufferable. <laughs> it, and, and you know it it's a very they, these guys always have sort of a, a balancing act because um, what was the Your Highness? Yeah, which. Oof. I, I, you know, it has its merits, I guess, but I thought it just wasn't as funny as it probably could have been with that premise. Well, I mean, I think the, the advantage of a premise as loose as this, because I mean, mm-hmm. it's not as if it's a super high, it's not as if it's 
crawl where they're like they have to go into the LA wasteland and then they have to find the stones to reverse the apocalypse or whatever. Like it's mostly just an excuse to have to have them just hang out. Like what you know all those parts the movie of the you know the Apatow movies where everyone likes where people are just sort of sitting in a living room hanging out. Like what would be a concept to have that be the whole movie? Yeah. yeah. Um and so like the it, it helps that it just it plays to all of their strengths as comic actors whereas your highness like why on earth would you ever saddle Danny McBride with a voice that is not his own? Like his voice is <laughs> weapon. Mm-hmm. That way he over enunciates everything, and like his accent is part like. And then him doing a weird British accent that whole movie was like. There's all these lines that I think, oh man, that would have been really funny if he could just be Danny McBride. Yeah, and, but at the same time, the accent, you know, him not being able to hit the accent, there could be there could be comedy mind from that, but I don't think they ever quite did I, that with the film. Even if they I, that would be a joke that would run thin. Oh, and, it, really quick, yeah. But yeah, this is the end. No, it's definitely a place to their strengths. And I, for as, for as we're playing ourselves and we're parodying our images, it's not that self-referential. Like, I, especially, apparently, like, you know, like, like just some of the, the the personalities they gave each other are not necessarily like you know they, they're they're weird heightenings and you don't need to know about them in real life in order to because it's pretty well established so yeah and it, it's kind of just parodying the whole notion of of Hollywood stars in yeah. general like you know having them all be sort of self absorbed and and uh, you know these really heightened uh, personalities that are that are very much um, stuck on themselves so I think I think it worked in that regard too, because while it was making fun of all of them, it was making fun of Hollywood in general, which is usually a pretty, pretty broad target that you, yeah. can, that you can go with. And also they're just, they just went for it. I really mm-hmm. love, and it's, if they were, it's like, I feel like, okay, like Kevin Smith makes comedies where people are just hanging around talking about their dicks. Like that, that, that's the, that's the main criticism. That's the way that all those movies are diminishes. Oh, they're just, you know, they're just hanging out, make rip, like rip it on each other, talking about their dicks. But like, this movie like just really goes for it. Like it's just, they're like, oh, what if we just had a scene that just parodied Rosemary's Baby? And it was just <laughs> it was shot exactly the same way. And then The like, Exorcist. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the movie, but like, but like that the ending is just. I mean, they, and they went for an overtly Christian <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> like I love that there was just like it's not. Oh, it's a vague end of the world scenario. It was literally just Satan, a giant naked Satan, <laughs> stomping around LA made of lava. I actually like, really liked. Um, it's a disaster. Which is man, how many you know end of the world apocalypse is, movies came out in the past couple of years? But that's like the indie comedy version, right? With like yeah. David Cross. And- oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I really I liked it. I thought it was like hanging out at a dinner party in Grand Rapids with a bunch of hipsters. And their reaction to, uh, you know, the end of the world would be very similar. They would still be incredibly self-absorbed. <laughs> I don't mean that in a loving way. I don't mean that, like, you know, they're actually yeah. like that. It's just that it's like an exaggeration, again, that I, I thought was really funny and really well written. And David Cross doesn't, uh, you know, play his usual self either. I like that. I mean, when and also uh, when two movies with sort of similar, and it's not really even a similar premise, but it's sort of uh, similar. Uh, when they come out around the same time, it's a you know you always end up comparing and contrasting them. And I do definitely like taking the fun just hangout vibe of an Apatow movie or like something that's really brilliant and tightly constructed, like Edgar Wright's The World's End. Like I'm all going to go with World's End 100 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Like that. Oh well, yeah. I think it's just I think that's one of the best movies of the year. I think it's so amazing. But yeah, like, that's a great movie. 
I think This Is the End maybe got unfairly shit on a little bit because it's like, oh, they're just being themselves. And it's it could have been a lot. It could have been a lot more guilty of that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So, Jim, what have you watched? Um, not a whole lot because this is actually one of the few times where I've seen every single uh, film by the director that we're going to be talking about. Um, so I just, I tried to rewatch um, some of my favorites by him, and I didn't really get a chance to see a whole lot, but um, I needed to lighten things up a little bit, and uh, as I've talked in the past, 1999 obviously was a great year for movies, most folks know that by now, because of Magnolia, Fight Club, being John Malkovich, etc., um, but I think it was actually a pretty good year for comedy, um, including a couple I just recently revisited since the first time I saw them in the theater. And I appreciated them even more. And that would be Bowfinger and Dick. <laughs> I love the way you, 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 you have this little twisting little garden pat. You're like, it's, 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 it's like you're opening an Academy Award envelope or something. Like, <laughs> and, the, and the movie I'm going to talk about is... <laughs> Bowfinger and Dick. I've not seen Dick. Can you start with yeah, Dick? Oh man, I love Dick. Um, <laughs> How much Dick, do you love Dick? Oh, I I love it so much. If, that, if you had to say what your favorite parts of, of of Dick is, what 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 do you love most about Dick? Well, definitely uh, Dan Hedaya as Tricky Dick. Um, Oh, you're talking you're like about the head movie. Day okay, continue. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, uh, it it's it's a political satire that imagines two teenage girls being the source of what brought brought down the president. Um, essentially, they are deep throat, and this is a premise that you know could be completely uh, you know gimmicky, but. I don't know, this, this writer-director, he also did uh, The Craft, of all things. Um, but, like, I don't know, he's found the right balance of sort of, you know, the occasional campy moment, but he manages to, like, have a lot of sincerity within the characters. Like, they, Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst sort of do the Romeo and Michelle thing, but it's never too ditzy or obnoxious. You actually buy them, you know, in that world. And I, I like this accidental history approach where they, you know, inadvertently become involved with a lot of uh, things from the past. It's very Forrest Gump or Quantum Leap. Um, well, actually, I, I was just thinking, isn't that a literal joke from Forrest Gump that he is deep throat? Um, like, one of the, the yeah. one of the jokes of Forrest Gump is that he has the hotel across from right. Margate or whatever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Forget about that. <laughs> so, maybe it's not the most original premise, <laughs> but the supporting cast is just outstanding. You got guys from Kids in the Hall, SNL, SCTV. Um, it's it's just who, who from SCTV? Um, Eugene Levy, of course. Why not? Um, and, and my gosh, uh, Bruce McCullough from Kids in the Hall. Just he's so great. As I he's can't remember if, he, if he's Woodward or Bernstein, but man, he's hysterical. So is this like just a, like a wacky comedy version of All the President's Men, where it's like yeah. a parody of a thriller? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Oh, okay. You know, it's for that time. Like, I was you know really getting into uh, these sort of high concept comedies, and like this one, 
you know... It, well, so was Hollywood. Well, yeah. But, you know, I think at the time, like, you know, having a political satire might have been kind of redundant in terms of, you know, how many Hollywood satires have we had? Uh, but it's it's really just about smart writing and whether or not you find it funny. And I just happen to find uh, both of these movies funny. And the other one is Bowfinger. Um, an example of a comedy I think that has actually aged pretty good. Um, it has Steve Martin as an indie filmmaker trying to get uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, a big blockbuster star, to star in this film called Chubby Rain. <laughs> and um, since Eddie Murphy doesn't want to be in the film, uh, Steve Martin figures out a way to put him in the movie without uh, Eddie Murphy even knowing it. Uh, but <laughs> the biggest laughs actually come when uh, Eddie Murphy plays his dim-witted twin brother, and the audition scene that he has might be one of the best things he's he's done. Uh, at least at the time, since Nutty Professor, and I don't think... Eddie Murphy's been funny possibly since this movie. I haven't kept up, obviously, with his daddy daycare run or I, you know, I, I read an interview with Eddie Murphy recently, and apparently, like, every movie he's done, like, in the 21st century, basically, um, has mostly been just about getting paychecks. And what he's been doing with that money is he's been building a really, 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 really nice recording studio in his mansion. And he's because apparently for the past like thirty years, like obviously people mock the album he did with Rick James because it's like oh it's just he was so famous that yeah. he could sing something and it's it's put in the same sort of bin as you know Bruce Willis's album and stuff like that. But and I I I mean I think Party All the Time is a great song, but I think that's I Rick James wrote a great, <laughs> Rick James wrote a great song and he let Eddie Murphy sing it. But, I love that song too. But apparently like Eddie Murphy's super serious about music and he's just been writing. Songs nonstop for the past twenty years, and I mean, if you you know watch a stand up or whatever, he loves singing and so like that, and he has a nice voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recently released a single with Snoop Dogg or Snoop Lion, I guess now, yeah. um, where he has this fake reggae voice, and it's a it's a reggae song. <laughs> wow! Well, good so apparently, that. that's just Eddie, Eddie Murphy just had a, had a career change, and he just decided, you know what, I'm gonna keep this. I'm gonna he until he thought he was ready, sort of <laughs> release. His music upon the world. Wow, that's what he's doing. I love Bowfinger. I love that. Yeah, guerrilla filmmaking is much. It's like the most interesting kind of filmmaking to watch people do. Right, exactly. Um, in a farce and stuff like that. Uh, I only just recently realized I was looking at Steve Martin's IMDb. He wrote it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I give him full credit. Like I think his sort of romantic comedy, almost like his Annie Hall, was L.A.'s story. And that's probably the best thing he's done, other than probably the jerk, in my opinion. Because that's I love L.A. Story. That that is one of the funniest comedies ever made, as far as I'm concerned. I I don't know what it's been, but like the past month, three people have told me, "Oh, you haven't seen L.A. Story." Oh, you haven't seen L.A. Story? Like I was talking about, I was talking like with my partner Regina about uh, like Sarah Jessica Parker, and I'm like, "Well, Sarah Jessica Parker, clearly the best movie she ever did was Girls Just Want to Have Fun," and she's like, "No, L.A. Story, L.A. Story, or Flight of the Navigator." Well, and it's funny because it's almost like her character from Girls Just Want to Have Fun sort of grew up. Oh, really? Oh, that's excellent. And is just in L.A. story. That's fantastic. (laughs) Oh, man, I need to see that. Um, So it's kind of funny because Steve Martin is sort of similar to Eddie Murphy. He he just sort of started coasting in all of his films, and now he does music. That's what he cares about. That's weird. Who knew? I don't know. I, I I just want a documentary that is a lunch that the two of them had talking about 
like like I mean this is just a good idea, but I don't know how many more of these I'm gonna have. I'm more getting more into playing the banjo and he's like, I know what you're talking about, Steve. I've been <laughs> like now they just have to collaborate on an album. Oh my <laughs> god, a bluegrass reggae song <laughs> about oh that'd be it. That'd be the, my favorite nightmare. That should be the name of this that's the album, my favorite nightmare. Um, I think Pluto Nash was probably Eddie Murphy's nightmare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get paid a lot of money. That's not a nightmare. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, what does he care? Like, he, he's, his spot in comedy history is, is solid. It, people can mock him, mock him all he wa- they want to, but, you know, yeah. dude with trading places and he, <laughs> and he recorded two of the best stand up specials ever. Yeah, whenever, 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 he, whenever he dies, uh, the people, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see all the great yeah. stuff and nobody's going to remember the bad stuff. The guy may or may not have, like, may or may not have a thing for transvestite hookers. Like, that's, <laughs> and that's, and what people are going to remember that uh, uh, James Brown hot tub sketch. Right out of hell, like. Which is one of the best sketches ever. <laughs> I like uh, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. That's Yeah, cool. exactly. Yeah. No, he's, he was great. Um, yeah, I should watch Bowfinger again, too. That's one of those movies that, pro- like, yeah. Those high-concept comedies, uh, I would not mind a return to them. Yeah, same here. They were both a joy to revisit because I had not seen them since they came out. And I was just like, you know what? I should look for something light after all these Nicholas Winding Refn movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it... You know, with the entire discussion of this is the end, I think there's a lot of people that would just like to see comedy get back to having a concept. Yeah, in, yeah. In some sense, high or low. <laughs> and, and I think, like, I mean, there, I think it was good that Judd Apatow arrived when he did and was like, hey, what if we made these people have feelings? <laughs> like, like, it was, like in 2005 when everything was Wedding Crashers and, and Dodgeball or whatever, like, Ugh. like having a movie about feelings and a relationship was like, oh, wow, this is, and it's also, you know, can be vulgar and also can have, be loose and funny, um, but it, it could also just have an emotional core. Like, oh, that's pretty great. Um, and then, sort of, he went off the deep end on that emotional core. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, maybe one day he'll, he'll learn that he is not uh, John Cassavetti or Ingmar Bergman and he can't make these, <laughs> um, he, he just, he just doesn't, those just are not his skills, but, and then obviously there's, why he's one of my favorite directors ever, Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. who's yeah. like, oh, I can do both. Yeah. <laughs> do you want yeah. both? Yeah. I'll do both. And he's great at it. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's fantastic. It'll be one of the greatest movies you've ever seen in your life. Um, and, and you'll care about the characters, and it'll be ridiculous and wacky and vulgar and have a high concept and have all these references to movies but not feel beholden to any of them. And, oh, and man. <laughs> at this point, I don't think we need to do an Edgar Wright episode. <laughs> oh, we have to. Because, <laughs> oh, well, I mean, let's we- We've talked about him so much and how much we love him. It's it's great. I mean, I I'm looking forward to whatever he does next, and I'm actually a fan of all of his movies. So yeah, I'm. You know what? As far as I'm concerned, he made three perfect movies. Yeah. Um, I think I think I think you know, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz being my favorite. Um, though the world's end and that could uh, get better. That could grow on me more as I watch it because that seems to be a little more complex and interesting thematically than the other two. But um. But I think he made three perfect movies, and now if he goes off and he starts just sort of trying out different things, like even if they're not perfect, like I, I like Scott Pilgrim a lot, but it's not. I think there's a lot of it that's just fundamentally flawed about it. Uh, um, and yeah. if he if he starts going outside of his comfort zone, he starts making you know if, if it turns out uh, a big studio superhero movie just isn't right for him or whatever. Like I would I don't care. I'm really interested just to see what he does next, and he's 
he's done enough as far as I'm concerned. Like, uh, I think I think the his best three movies are up there with the Marx Brothers' best three movies, and you know, so as long as he doesn't, uh, and so many comedy directors they return to the well, and then they just get decree, you know, they just get, uh, you know, uh, the the results are sort of decreasing, and they just um, the films just come out lesser and lesser. And if he decided, you know, he's a good enough director, he could make a political thriller that was. You know, you can make something in the vein of Argo that what, that has comedy in it, but is not a comedy. You know, he's he can do anything he wants to. So I'm really excited to see where his career goes too. And maybe we should wait a little bit um, before doing an episode on him, seeing like if Ant comes out or whatever. Uh, see what he does next. Holy rain! Oh, is it, is it hitting you now? Did it make There's, it over there? Sunshine coming through my Venetian blinds. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Wow, this is nuts. Yeah, like that's the fascinating. Most insane wind and rain ever. I bet it's great for the podcast because they can actually see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So Patrick, the, the, the number one thing that people like about podcasts is when people describe the weather. Of course. Um, or you know, uh, eat on a podcast, or you know, eat on a podcast. <laughs> Steve Dahl used to eat bowls of cereal during his morning <laughs> oh, show. <God>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about um, movies, Patrick. What do you watch? Oh yeah, so I'm mostly just been going insane recently i've been looking for a roommate i have it's it's been uh i have seasonal depression so um it's hard to do all my roommates uh you know the sun being away a lot of times now it's hard just to get out of bed i have spent uh, a couple full days this month just staying in bed and not eating so like it's been hard for me to watch uh, a lot of movies. Um, I feel like I should give you a hug. Right yeah, now. yeah. I, I basically, I'm trying to, I'm trying to fish, uh, fish compliments and hugs and email hugs out of all of our listeners. I'm fine. I'll be fine. Um, but uh, so, it's, uh, so actually, I realized last night I had not seen any non Nicholas Winding Refn movies since we last recorded. So this morning, uh, instead of finishing the Pusher trilogy, um, I, uh, I, I watched the first two Pushers. I. Uh, I watched uh, The Vampire Lovers, which is a hammer horror film. It's uh, notorious for being a uh, very, very erotic uh, lesbian film. Um, It's based off the short story or novella Carmela, which is about a sort of an older vampire uh, seducing a a, a young, (laughs) a young lady. And of of course, they both have to be murdered for the for the good of uh, for the good of Christianity. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, Ingrid Pitt is. It looks good naked, and so so does uh, I think Madeline Stowe is the other actress. Or uh, mm, I, don't, I don't think she would no. be in that. Yeah, no. It's I think it's Madeline something. Um, but anyway, I mean, it's it, it's sexy or whatever. But it's also it, it did camera home for me. Uh, pun intended. Um, Madeline Smith is Emma Morton in this. Hmm. Uh, it did hammer home for me uh, why what I don't really like about Hammer films, which is they're very, very much kind of Victorian uh, morals, <laughs> and and they're just very like uh, like in the, in the Hammer Dracula movies, like it's not good conquers evil, it's Christianity conquers Dracula. <laughs> so and they really hammer, they really again, I keep saying hammer that, I keep doing hammer puns. They really nail that home with a with an object of some kind. Um, a lot in their movies, and it's and the the way that I mean, most monster movies can be broken down to good versus evil and stuff like that. But the way it's coded is so explicitly Christian that it kind of turns me off. Um, and also, there's just there's not, I just don't like the setting. I just don't like Victorian kind of settings. I think they're just kind of boring usually. 
um, unless they're done in a weird, crazy art style like that uh, silent uh, silent film adaptation of Fall of the House of Usher that I saw that I talked about uh, last episode. Um, or like the uh, Roger Corman movies are are delicious too and wonderful. And those take those certainly take a little bit from Hammer Horror, but uh, those tend to have a little more uh, sense of humor. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just. Like for me, the, I wanted the vampires to get together because, like, they're the fun. They're the ones having fun. They're the ones having all the crazy queer sex, and 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 the other ones are just like ballroom dancing for eternity. And so, when in the end of the movie, when you know, good triumphs over evil by a stake to the heart, it, it felt like just a bummer ending. Well, I, I think one of the things that that you have to keep in mind with Hammer horror films, especially, is that they they definitely have a very gothic sensibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea in like gothic literature that, especially in female gothic literature, that um, you know the, the protagonist, the female protagonist, is often being oppressed by heterosexuality and she has to flee from it in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. But then they have to be punished yeah. at the end of the film uh, to sort of re-establish the status quo and, and all that stuff. And I think Hammer is really tying into that type of, of uh, sensibility with, with their films. Yeah. Especially our, something like this, like this one, like The Vampire. Yeah, friend of the podcast, Robert Reinecke, uh, he's a huge Hammer Horror fan. He's a big fan of Terrence Fisher. Um, and every discussion we've had on this, because I, because I so feel not the same way as him, he has talked about that, and I have to say, and I just you know have to flat out say like, oh, I'm I'm just not well read in gothic literature. It's not. Oh, I mean, mean, Edgar yeah. Allan Poe is pretty much, and that's post gothic literature, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I mean, I'm not that versed in in gothic literature, but I'm I'm working on some I imagine, papers yeah. on that. Yeah, but I imagine that context would would add to those would add to those films, and also I do think um, the reason those films like. The thing that was noteworthy about those films was that they were in color and they were bloody mm-hmm. and they were sexual in a time when movies weren't necessarily that way. And I imagine they wouldn't have been able to get away with it if they didn't make such a strong play for, look, they're morality tales, yep. um, which, you know, I'm glad that they were able to do that during the time. But now in 2013, it can end up being a little dated or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Uh, I should probably just read more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by them because they're so Hammer horror films are so beloved by other horror film nerds that I tend to give everyone else the benefit of the doubt and try to see what I'm missing. So I'm probably going to watch more. Um, this came on a double set with uh, Countess Dracula, also starring Ingrid Pitt, um, which I imagine is a similar thing. Actually, no, I think that's a, a Elizabeth Bathory uh, story. Yeah, and a weird connection, too. I think the story that inspired the Vampire Lovers was actually adapted uh, as the Vampire Hunter D sequel. Oh, really? Uh, they brought, because I believe the villainous in that was, was Carmela or, or something along the lines. I could be getting this way wrong, but I think they were sort of using cool. the same story to build their their crazy anime. Dracula, lo- uh, not Dracula. Um, Japan loves Dracula. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> it's, it's I, that would be another thing I'd, I'd love to look into because, I mean, I always thought that was fascinating about like the Castlevania video game series that Dracula is just like a synonym for Satan mm-hmm. <laughs> in those games and uh, in and then when I learned more about the Hammer Horror Dracula films and apparently that's sort of the same case there. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'm, I'll watch more Hammer Horror. I still have that Craig Brewer uh, film um, which apparently he's released for free online. His first film he ever made, oh, which really? uh, it was the you know, it was in Sundance. It never got a proper release because it was just such a low budget film. But it is the thing that made uh, um, John Hughes uh, to decide pick him to direct Hustle and Flow, um, hmm. um, which John you know Hughes? obviously started. 
Not John Hughes. Uh, who directed Boys in the Hood? John Singleton. John Singleton. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, not not that not that I wouldn't <laughs> want to see John Singleton's uh, version of um, Breakfast Club. I want to see John Hughes's version of Hustle and Flow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All everything. Hey, I was I was oh I was thinking about John Hughes the other day because I don't like him very much, and I was thinking the one thing I do like about him that because uh, I, I was listening to Yellow. And I was thinking, John Hughes had really good taste in music. Very much. Like, his soundtracks oh, sure. are, are legitimately hip. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't just going for top 40 stuff. Like, he, he was sort of the Sofia Coppola, as far as that concerned, where it's just, he really just had a really sophisticated <laughs> understanding of really good modern indie bands. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark is always going to be associated with Breakfast Club for me, but that's oh, yeah. just one of the best songs yeah. ever, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and the wide breadth of it, stuff from Yellow mm-hmm. yep. to Simple Minds and yep. all that, like, mm-hmm. you know. We should do a John Hughes episode. I bet if I watched a lot of his movies in a row, I would find something that I liked about them. I'm not a huge fan. Of my, I mean, I like the guy. I grew up with him because I'm, you know, I'm an '80s baby or an '80s kid, and yeah. and uh, I, I I like a lot of his stuff for nostalgia purposes. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is flat out one of my favorite movies, and I think Roger Ebert had this great that you know, he, he talks about Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of his great movies books. And uh, he talks about the ending being really sappy, but he, he, he maintains that it is earned. That's an earned sappiness. And I kind of agree with him in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that movie is hilarious. I should so. probably watch it. I think, I think I saw it on AMC once, and I was really not uh, impressed. I think there, that it is, I think maybe it's just not my thing. There is a kind of comedy in the late 80s where things were a little broad, a little... Um, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of 80s comedies I'm not a fan of, um, especially... One's directed towards older people. The the teenage comedies tend to be more fun to me, even though they're often less funny. But uh, no, I don't know. Um, no, I can see where it, I can see how it is off putting, and I, I I completely concede that. Too. Yeah, my main problem with uh, with John Hughes' teen movies is he so thoroughly believed in clicks, and I think that is, and because he so thoroughly defined what high school movies are, uh, modern high school movies are that. That's something that's just carried over, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I mean, I've talked about this before, but that's just like so antithetical to my high school experience right. that the idea of just like, oh, those are the goths, those are the stoners, those are, and there's no mingling between them. They're all set little group, like that sort of like, like as if there's a sorting hat at the beginning of every John Hughes <laughs> high school. <laughs> where it's just like, I'm sorry, you can't talk to him. He's Ravenclaw. That's why <laughs> Curse of Being a Wallflower, I think, did it right. Like, I mean, oh, yeah? there's there's definitely hints of this person is that type of person, but they don't necessarily, like, flock to the to a clique. They just sort of all hang out together, and they eventually just embrace all their weird quirks and stuff, and they don't necessarily, like, fit into a category. But, I mean, you can consider them outcasts, but at the same time, it's not like trying to pigeonhole their personalities, which is why I appreciate it about it. Well, what's, what's, what's funny is going back to your you know, 90s comedies, I feel like every 90s, like they would just have a sight gag where the goth girl, just like the, 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 the sort of dumb protagonist would fall at her feet in front of her locker and she used to be like smoking her cigarette at her locker, of course, because <laughs> that makes sense. And, and she'd just be like, ugh, and like, like a face. Or there'd just be like, Late in the late nineties, it was white guys who think they're black was always a slight gag thing. Um, I didn't actually, and this movie isn't great, uh, but it has a lot that's going on for it. I think ten things I hate about you is actually oh, a yeah. pretty 
teen comedy as far as the main all of the main characters are kind of weird floaters who uh like like uh david Crumholtz is in it and he's an av guy but he's also friends with joseph gordon levitt who's kind of a nerd and he's friend and they're and but joseph gordon levitt like in the middle of it starts dating the hot girl it's not like the end it's not the reward it's <laughs> it's they just start dating and then there's the dangerous guy and but they all sort of commingle together and it's still i don't know there's the, the movie's pretty dumb but i i have a fondness for it and it's and it does do a pretty good job as far as just uh, let's let's not let's no one rules the school in Ten Things I Hate About You. And if anyone rules the school in a movie, I automatically just have to call bullshit. And it's just I I can't like the movie that much. As you know, me, so you were never a Parker Lewis can't lose kind of guy. Huh? Did Parker Lewis rule the school? He did. Oh man, but is he the protagonist? I, yes, he was. Okay, so That's he was. Because one I, of the main. I can agree with you on that. With uh, especially with Ferris Bueller. Not a fan. Oh yeah, Fer- well Ferris Bueller's another example. Ferris, Ferris Bueller, no one really rules the school. It's everyone loves Ferris because because he's, he's fun. I and that's that's, <laughs> that's my chief problem with the all these, especially in the '90s, all these comedies where it was just like these bitches. Everyone hates them. That's why they're so popular. For in reality, in high school, the people who are popular are the ones who just do the most activities and therefore have the most interactions with the most people. And it's just like, oh yeah, I know him from student government. Oh, I know him from. He plays, you know, he does track and field. Oh, I know him because he's in, you know, you know, this club or that club or whatever. And it's like, oh, he just gets involved and he's friendly and that's why he's popular. Although I, I do I do think that um, Heathers could be the movie that is the exception that proves the rule where it's got, you know, the, the people that rule the school, but then it's, it's serving a purpose to sort yeah, of deconstruct yeah. that notion of, I can't, I mean, I'm, Heather's is another 80s comedy that's just not, uh, it just doesn't hit me as hard as I, I feel a lot of people who are a little older than me. It's definitely um, very broad. It's, but it's dark. It's not broad in the same way that 80s comedies like uh, Uncle Buck or something are <laughs> like. Is that 80s or is that like 1990? Uh, that was, I want to say it was either very late 80s or very early 90s. I can't I quite remember. 80, the, I think the, it was 89. Might be. It's, that could be probably what it when it was out. Because <laughs> I think but, Heather's and then Pump Up the Volume came out like a year later. Yeah, that would be then that would be right because that uh, yeah that was nineteen ninety or ninety one for right. the volume. Yeah, I should. I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a like to stand on. I one of my favorite genres of films. I think I've talked about this before. Is basically sleepover movies, mm. which is if it's a movie that girls would watch at a sleepover, <laughs> then I'm probably into it. And so it's like. And if you if you look at if you group movies in that way, you can actually see like, oh, there's a lot of similarity between girls just want to have fun and a Friday the Thirteenth movie, which is there's just a bunch of teenagers hanging out <laughs> killing time. Or House Party Two, the Pajama Jammy Jam. <laughs> what was that? House Party House Party Two, the Pajama Jammy Jam. <laughs> I've not seen that. Patrick, come on. Oh man, talking about a not broad '90s comedy. I've only seen the first house party, but I have seen Pajama Party, the Roger Corman beach party movie with Buster Keaton as a Native American. And uh, so there's Buster Keaton as a Native American, and that's racist. But then the most racist thing is the Puerto Rican girl who every time she dances, something around her just catches fire. There should be more movies with pajamas in it, period. Yeah. Yeah, pajamas are fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People in pajamas, not 90s, because 90s, it's like, okay, here comes the male gaze, but pajamas. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like big, speedy, footy pajamas. Yeah. 
<laughs> I want uh, I, okay. Here's what I want. I want a movie like Gosford Park, where it's an upper crust murder mystery, but everyone's wearing footy pajamas with a little butt flap at the back. That's what I want. I think you're just saying that in reality. It will just it just reminds the audience. Look, don't don't worry too much. We're gonna have fun here. Also, I think uh, not enough screenwriters take advantage of the exposition that can occur by what kind of sleeping bag a kid unrolls. You know, that could, you, you can you can show a lot about what your character, who your character is, unfolds that wampa sleeping yeah. bag. Is it, is it Alk? Is it wampa? Is it yeah? If it's a hipster with a with a one of those Star Wars themed ones, yeah, the, the wampa you crawl inside. Is it a? Is it a? Or is it Tauntaun? Oh my God! All the Star Wars geeks are gonna get on him oh now. Tauntaun, not a Wampa. They yeah. cut off the Wampa's arm. That's right. So many arms. So much dismemberment. <laughs> there's there sleep, there sleeping bags in uh, the last story in VHS two. Sleeping bags and masturbation. Oh, that's right. The last story in VHS two. Oh, did I did I talk about VHS two? Okay. I did finish it. I finished it. Um, it's really good. I want to see that. I like. Uh, well, no, the last story is really good. Um. I like the last the, two. The last two are good. The last one's the best, though. And you guys are trying to convince me the third one's the best. And uh, the last one, uh, Alien Invasion. Um, little kids fighting. It's it's basically the the horrific found footage version of like an eighties Amblin. So it's, it's basically the, the the good version of Super Eight. Yeah, it's the, yeah, exactly, exactly. I did, I had not seen Super Eight, so it didn't necessarily occur to me. But yeah, it's the good version of Super Eight, yeah. and especially good call. It's only like it's only twelve minutes long, so even better. Yeah. Um, no, VHS Two is much better than VH One. That's one, so mm-hmm. I can recommend it on those grounds. But still, eh, not so great. Um, you know, so other than the speaking of uh, sleepovers, Patrick, do you remember that time when? Uh, I slept over at your place, and we watched Cabin Fever 2 and Bronson. That was, that was, that was a beautiful segue, Jim. <laughs> uh, the hallmark of a good segue is just a soufflant of, uh, of, uh, of, of homoeroticism. And an awkward silence. Bit. There's and an awkward silence. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that was, that was delicious. Let's talk about Bronson. I want to talk about Bronson. Speaking of homoeroticism, I want to talk about Bronson. <laughs> I'm actually standing here all oiled up, naked and buff, ready to beat up some cops. So, Well, that's good, because I have half my face painted like a woman, half my face painted like a man. Yes. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, but it's not the director of this episode. It, Patrick, can I ask you a favor? Can you buy me, like, a terrible joke filter for Christmas so I can refrain from vomiting out... Things like that. Well, let's go to one of those tattoo places that has body modification, and I'll just get them to pierce your lower and upper lip together. Oh, yeah. That would work. Or we can just mm-hmm. go to Spencer's Gifts and find something good there. Yeah. Uh, Spencer's Gifts probably a better bet. The director of the episode. Nicholas Winding Reffin. Actually, I just have to um, step in here. Uh, it's actually pronounced Nicholas Binding Reffin. Whoa! Crazy dames. Game changed. Wow! It was all worth right. doing this episode just for that. <laughs> Let's all three say it together. Nicholas Vending Reffin. And if you want to get really Danish, it's actually Reffin. Reffin. Bless you. Nicholas Vending Reffin. The hell I'm not 
Partly in New York, his parents are Danish film director and editor Anders Reffen and cinematographer Vibeki uh, Binding. When Nicholas saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it ignited an inspiration for his filmmaking career. Quote, I grew up in a cinema family. My parents were brought up on the French New Wave. That was God to them, but to me was the Antichrist. And how better to rebel against your parents than by watching a film or two that your mother is going to hate, which were American horror films. When I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I realized I don't want to be a director. I don't want to be a writer. I don't want to be a producer. I don't want to be a photographer. I don't want to be an editor. I don't want to be a sound man. I want to be all of them at once. And that film proved that you could do it because that movie is not a normal movie. Let's learn a whole lot more about them here on the podcast. Here we go. Pusher. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Nicholas Weiningreffen. Um, I think he's made a couple of languid and very minimalist films that don't necessarily work. Um, there's certainly things to admire about him, but they just didn't work as a whole for me. Um, I know he doesn't believe in storyboards. He insists on shooting the film in chronological order. And he's colorblind, which is very interesting, given how heightened his uh, palette is, which I kind of find very interesting. Um, well, that's probably why it's yeah. heightened. Mm-hmm. But, but it's interesting, too, that one of the dominant palettes in, in almost all of his films is red. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in uh, Fear X. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. You know, I... Th- I it's it's crazy. Like I think he's got this beautiful synthesis between sound and image that you know at times reminds me of David Lynch, but he's still got that rhythm uh, for the for the majority of his films that I find really kind of propulsive, uh, especially in Bronson and and I actually think that the more I watch Drive, the more I like it, and I I'm hearing the opposite from a lot of people that it's not holding up as much upon rewatches, which is disappointing because I'm. It's starting to become one of my favorite films, and uh, I just I just really like his style. It's that simple. He has a very stylistic signature that probably puts him in the auteur category, and his films are very distinctive in tone. But the problem with Pusher is that it's not quite the refin that he later became. Um, it, it, I just think his sort of gritty visual style. I mean, it's kinetic, but. The movie itself just kind of has a television police procedural quality to it. Um, I mean, the violence is is there, but I, 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 and I definitely don't mind it when a director t- attempts to do something Scorsese-esque, but um, I just didn't think thematically it was as rich as his other films, and maybe it's not being fair just to 
because I'm such a huge fan of his other work, watching something like Pusher felt like a step back, at least for me. There, the things about the things about Pusher that I think I can appreciate looking at it in the context of 1996, sure. which is to say, um, two years after Pulp Fiction came out, someone made a gangster movie that was not influenced that much by Pulp Fiction at all. Right. Like, mm-hmm. there's a little bit. There's a little bit of them, you know, chatting and stuff, but it's not the literate pop culture riffing that, uh, you know, nightmare that, that Pulp Fiction spawned. It's much, much similar to something like Mean Streets um, or, or you know, Killing the Chinese Bookie or some of these other 70s crime films. So in that terms, like, I imagine when this movie came out, uh, I, and I, I don't know the exact timeline of all of the, uh, of the Tarantino ripoffs, but I imagine... This would this has this would be a breath of fresh air to be, you know, uh, somewhere in between uh, Mean Streets and uh, Dogma '95. <laughs> but uh, I, think, I, I think it it did actually get lumped in with those post Tarantino films. I'm sure. Yeah, way. I'm sure from um, less discerning people. Yeah, and I, but I think it's really sort of risen up, you know, in in the ensuing years as something that is very that's very different, while still sort of, uh, you know in that post Tarantino uh, frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's certainly so, better than two days in the Valley or things to do in dead for when you're dead. Um, what I find interesting about, uh, Nicholas finding reference is, I mean, I, I have not seen fear X or bleeder, um, but I have seen pusher and pusher two. Um, and I understand he did pusher three, uh, shortly after pusher two and then he did TV movies and then he did Bronson. Um, now, the thing I find about interesting about him is he, he cites uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as sort of the inciting film that made him sort of realize he wanted to make movies or whatever. And yep. I think Pusher is he's taking maybe the wrong lessons from Texas Chainsaw Massacre where he's making a film that's very gritty and it's very um, and it's just a lot of handheld camera work. And it's mm-hmm. just and it's just um, uncompromising and it's not attempting to give you um, a complex story. Uh, like it's, it just feels like this is a moment in this person's life. It feels like the same way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre just feels like a, just uh, it just feels like something that exists as opposed to something that's constructed. And Pusher doesn't feel like constructed as much as it just feels like kind of uh, organic. Um, but what I look at when I look at modern or you know latter day, and I don't know how long his career is going to be. Who knows how many uh, who knows how many uh, different movements in his career allowed, but. Um, but I look at the films he's making now, it feels like the things he's taking from Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that you don't have to apologize for being, for provoking the audience. Um, and so, you know, you look at something like Bronson and I mean, I'm not at all a fan of only God forgives, but you cannot ever claim that it's an ineptly made movie or that it is not exactly what it wants to be. Uh, it is a well, it is exactly is well executed, uh, uh, portray- uh, uh, it's, it's his vision, well executed, and yeah. he is un- he is unafraid to provoke the audience. Um, and in my case, I didn't enjoy being provoked at all. I thought it was, you know, I, I didn't I didn't see much point in it. But like, you know, something like Bronson, he's he'll just poke you, and something like Drive, he'll just he'll just wallow in a scene, and he'll just wallow in the emotion scene where things feel like slow motion to the point where, like, so many people just thought fell asleep during that movie, and like, I, I think that is what I find fascinating about him. Nowadays, the filmmaker, I haven't seen Valhalla Rising, so I don't know if it's a similar thing. But um, I feel like the lack of style, um, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't behoove Pusher because it also, as a screenplay, doesn't have much 
It feels incredibly generic to me. See, I, I would yeah. I would disagree on that point. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that that Refn is is really concerned with, and and I think Jonathan, the film critic Jonathan Romney, really put it well. He talks about how um, Refn is as male a director as they come. Right. Yeah. But masculinity has never been as troubled as it is in his films, and I think you really see this sort of obsession with with masculinity and what does it mean to be a man and all this and, and, and just your own identity as, as a man uh, sort of coming out in, in uh, pusher. Uh, and then, it, and then it's a theme that runs through every single movie afterwards. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a simple story. I agree with you on that. I definitely think it's, it's a very simple story, but there's a lot of complexity that is being explored throughout because you have this character who is trying to, establish himself as someone who deserves respect and he's trying to uh you know do all the things that he thinks is are, are that you're supposed to do as a man you know he, he he's uh, pretending to be a tough guy and he's you know trying to get a lot of money and he's he's trying to be this sexually voracious sort of of character um but you see that he's having a very difficult time sort of coming to terms with the fact that he's not these yeah. things. And that I think informs the big thrust of the story, uh, or at least, you know, the, the big thrust of what's going on within this sort of simple story. I, I will agree. Uh, the most, the, the most compelling aspect of the story is that, um, is that he is such a shitty drug dealer, <laughs> which is, which I think is, which is really fun. to lot like um, a lot of these crime movies about people sort of coming out on top because they're smarter than everyone else and they just sort of play all the angles. Um, he starts out okay, but he just fucks himself over and over again because he's such a bad drug dealer. Um, and I think that's, that is interesting. But at the same time, I would think this specific genre of this sort of 70s inspired, like, especially in the 70s, like, again, that's, that to me is that's sort of what Mean Streets is about. It's not so much coded, it's more coded in uh, a struggle with morality than with masculinity, but it's still the same basic tale of someone trying to be something that he's not and being caught between these things. And like um, one of my favorite, another, another filmmaker who's super, super as male as they come is James Toback <laughs> and Fingers with Harvey Keitel is another film that I, th I think maybe explores it uh, a little more compellingly. Um, this very similar thing of a, of a man who just has this, uh, who he just is, who just utterly compulsive. And again, it's not framed the exact same. Way. I'm not trying to say that he he's ripping off these movies because um, that movie is framed through compulsion, um, inspired by the fact that James Tobax was a was slash maybe is still a uh, a degenerate gambler. Um, once you get to the 70s and you have all these character driven films, that is a common way to explore the character. Is he's a gangster. Um, I mean, the, the bad version is he's a gangster, but he has a heart of gold, which is, you know, but the good versions of this are he's a gangster, but crime isn't glamorous and, and also it's really stressful and also what told is that the constant violence and the constant, uh, you know, anxiety of being fingered by the cops or whatever, what told is that take on, I mean, that's uh, killing a Chinese bookie, that's fingers, that's, you know, mean streets. I, so when I say generic, I don't mean it is like every crime movie, but I do think it is a it is very similar to a lot of other crime movies I've seen, and it and it is so um, doggedly um, stripped down 
that it doesn't have the interesting flavors that I find in those other. It doesn't have the surrealism of Killing a Chinese Bookie. It doesn't have the um, it doesn't have the uh, the character in Fingers. It doesn't it doesn't have the um, sort of the compelling themes of Mean Streets. Um, just yeah. So and also it is such a inevitable. <laughs> it, it's a it is so from the from pretty early on in the movie, you know he's not going to pull out of it. Um, or at least I'm, I knew. Um, and I, I respect that he knew that he knew that he didn't have to show the ending of the story. Uh, when, when it cut to credits, I was like, wait, what the fuck? But then as I thought about it, I'm like, oh no, yeah, you don't need to see that. You know what's going to happen. And I'm glad he respects their, you know, your time that way. And, and it even, and, uh, you know, going on to Pusher 2, it even, that movie sort of, complicates the ending of Pusher because there's uh, the scene where Tony goes with uh, uh, Kirk the Cunt yeah. to do the drug deal with uh, Milo and Milo says have you seen Frank? Where's Frank? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you could read that two different ways. You could read that, that he knows what, what happened to Frank and he's responsible for what yeah, happened yeah. to Frank or somehow Frank managed to Get away. But what I like about what I liked about that part of Pusher Two is it acknowledges it, like it, it it wasn't like it wasn't a this is forty sort of thing. It was like it's the same universe, but we're not going to ever acknowledge the other movie. It acknowledges that other movie, but it doesn't step on the ending right. because yeah. I think the importance of I think there I don't think it's an ambiguous ending in Pusher because whether or not he skips town or whether or not he's murdered or what he's done. He's like, done. Yeah. Like it's it's the same thing to that character. Yeah. Because that character, because because death, because not doing what he does would be death. Because that guy's gonna get a fucking job. Like that guy, he's yeah. gonna be, you know, he'll, he'll get a flight to wherever. He's gonna be homeless there. He's mm -hmm. gonna be unhappy there. Or he's gonna get in the same situation there. Yeah. Like, or he's gonna die. Like, it's the same thing. I um, and I like that. Um, I do think Pusha yeah, that's is, my I, favorite I, of the Tony trilogy. is a more compelling character. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think Tone. I think. Um, I think that the themes of masculinity are a lot more um, strongly established. Mm -hmm. And to be and to be fair, Nicholas Winding, uh, Nic uh, Nicolas Winding <laughs> Rafon, um, yeah, sorry, uh, he was 25 when he made Pusher. Yes. Um, he was probably in his 30s when he made uh, Pusher 2. So and he was very contrite when he made Pusher 2 because what happened, the story about how, I don't know if you guys know how no, Pusher 2 and Pusher 3 came about. He made Pusher... Then he came to the to the states and made Fear X, and that bankrupted. Yes, he put a lot of his own money in it, and that bankrupted him. So he went back to Denmark, and that's when he came up with the ideas for Pusher Two and Pusher Three, and used them to recoup his losses from Fear X. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and, and I think that sort of plays into these the themes of Pusher Two because you know he had learned a really hard yeah. lesson. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he just, yeah, he had been in prison. Yeah. <laughs> the, the prison of, oh man, my first movie I made when I was, in, when I was only 25, it got international distribution and I was, I was a name and suddenly I, I was like, oh, I'm set and then I'm fucked. Yeah. Like, I think, yeah, so I think Pusher 2 is a lot better, uh, more developed. I still think, I still wish it had a bit more of a style and I mean, I'm, and I never ever want to, to ring the bell of dumb ring the bell. I don't think it's a metaphor. I don't ever want to ring the bell of, Oh, it has unlikable characters. You have to be able to like characters. Cause that's, I think that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. I think you just have to find characters compelling. Yeah. Um, 
And so, but it is not a pleasant experience to watch Pusher at all because everyone in it is so unpleasant. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that is a big part of, of what Refn is trying to say with these films because I think he claims, one of the things that he claims is that he's a feminist. Yeah. Um, and that he doesn't have much, uh, he doesn't care much for men. Uh, so one of the things that, that at least that I'm taking away from a lot of his movies is that he's sort of shoving your nose in this notion yeah. of, of, you know, violent, aggressive, uh, tough guy type of masculinity. And all of his characters sort of have these moments, you know, where they're on top because of the, you know, they, they comply to this type of masculinity, but then they have a really drastic fall from, from where they were because, I think in his mind, and I, I don't have you know a lot of backup yeah. for this, but I think I think in Reffin's mind, this type of masculinity leads to negative consequences, and he's going to show you all the really terrible consequences that that come out from being an asshole, basically, yeah. and, and from being this this type of tough individual who has no uh, you know no compassionate feelings. No, and it's and it, yeah, it was definitely something I was I was thinking about, uh, um, especially watching this uh, with my partner, who's uh, a very diehard you know feminist and, and much more well read in me than me um, on these sorts of things. Um, the idea of can a movie have women who are nothing but you know whores and who are nothing but victims? Like, what? How feminist can that movie be? And I think that is there's actually um, some critique against uh, people who. Uh, some people don't, you know, I think it's sort of a similar thing that you can talk about, like John Cassavetes, where all, like, the women in his movies are all victims, and it's, um, <laughs> and it's, and he is the same, like, he's very fascinated by the way men gaslight women, and obviously it's not so overtly violent, it's more, you know, psychological and everything, but it's, he's interested in similar themes, but um, at the same time, like, there are, a, in a lot of his movies, there's just a scene where there's just a stripper in the background mm -hmm. and it's just, well, they're in the, and it's just like window dressing where it's just like, there's a naked woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like more so in, in Bronson and, um, and, uh, only God forgives, but it's just like, I don't know. It's I'm, and again, I'm not super well read on feminism. I'm not right. ready to, but it is, it's definitely, I do appreciate that. Um, and it's definitely cause he's two, 2013, cause it's 2013. Um, or, you know, it was the 90s and the 2000s and everything when all these movies were made. Like, uh, he he is as male a director as they come, like he said, but because it's no longer the 70s, he's not Peck and Paul. Right. Like, he's not glorifying, like, he's not glorifying out-of-control masculinity. Mm -hmm. He is, um, um, to an extent, he isn't. Uh, right. I think we, when we get to Bronson, that, that gets to be a little more interesting as to the ways that, he both finds things to celebrate and to uh, to just to the that are exactly. disgusting yeah. about someone who's just a raging masculine id. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I've seen in Pusher. I'm trying to think. Uh, I liked the early scenes with Tony. Mm -hmm. I, I liked if it got less. If it was more of that. If it was more. I mean, again, it is two guys talking talking about you know, just vulgar things that they do to women or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the most, uh, it's not necessarily the most original <laughs> way to establish, uh, amoral characters or whatever, but, uh, I thought they had good chemistry. Oh yeah. yeah, um, for sure. yeah. You could definitely see, um, you know, Matt Mickelson sort of 
the star quality of, mm-hmm. of that guy uh, at the time, uh, which I think is finally being more widely acknowledged thanks to Hannibal and uh, uh, the, all the movies that he's which, done. I'm, and, I'm, and I just sorry, I'm bad with names. Which was Mac? Uh, he plays Tony. Okay, and yeah. he's in Hannibal. Yes, he's in the TV show Hannibal. Is he, the, um, is he, he Hannibal? plays Hannibal Lecter. Oh, that's great. Uh, I should, yeah, I mean, among all the other reasons I should watch it, people loving that show. That's, yeah, that's great. But I mean, I think he got you know when when Casino Royale came out, he played Le Chief. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was sort of the, the thing that broke him wide. But I really think that in you know especially Pusher and Pusher Two, you can really see that sort of star quality that he had and that that sort of breakout. Um, something or the, the, you know, he had it or whatever. He's the it girl of those movies. <laughs> my, fa- I, my favorite moment in the whole movie, the one where it's it's just the it's and it's the most stylish moment. It's the most it's the most standout. Look at this moment, moment. So it's no surprise that it stands out to me. But it's the uh, it's the run away from the cops. Just that one long unearthed just. People sprinting for <laughs> long periods of time without any editing is fascinating to watch, especially if the camera's following them. Uh, and, you know, I like, I like White Zombie, so that, <laughs> I, like the, I like the music. That, and I like the set to his music. Yeah. I think there's a White Zombie poster in his, or in his apartment or in someone else's apartment. You see, like, uh, Astro Creep 20, yeah. 2000 poster in someone's apartment and stuff. Well, and I think that scene also really sort of highlights the themes that, that he's exploring this, this idea of, of, um, you know, complicit masculinity where it's yeah. somebody putting on this front to, yeah, yeah. to pretend something. And you see that in that scene where Frank is running and if he was in better shape, you know, and a better and a, and a tougher guy or whatever, he could have gotten away from those cops. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's, you know, just kind of a chubby schlub, uh, and he gets winded. <laughs> but, he's still, but he still has a victory over them. He does. have and, a victory and over what them, I like about that is what I like about that is again, uh, it, it does, it is about, it is about him, it, and this wouldn't happen if he wasn't such a shitty drug dealer, is the one moment he has anything of, on anyone else is in those scenes with the cops. And I love that that's, that's preluded by that run that's set to what I like to imagine is in his mind, the soundtrack. Like in his mind, he's hearing, uh, you know, industrial metal as he's running <laughs> because it's because it's because just the adrenaline's pumping in his head. It's just the most exciting mm-hmm. and terrifying um, and an exhilarating moment. And like he finally get, and he gets one over on them. He acts completely different than mm-hmm. every other scene because he's because he because uh, he has something over them. So instead of you know so yeah, I just I just like that it's it's all front the mm-hmm. yeah, the implication that it's all front. Mm-hmm. Well, it's um, interesting too for me. It's like I always focus on the psychological turmoil or just the uh, internal struggles of a character for a, at least a couple of his movies. I'm just kind of in awe of his aesthetic and just the design of most of his movies kind of fascinate me. Like they're, they're hypnotic, like even only God forgives. I think, I don't, I think it's one of his weaker films, but I'm just like in awe of it visually. And I, and I like that he focuses a lot, um, on, on blood. I mean, obviously his fascination with red and sort of displaying blood as art at moments like in, in, in uh, Pusher, uh, a junkie shoots himself with a shotgun and the blood is very illustrative. And I think he has similar moments throughout all of his movies that are the colors and textures sort of influence the emotion. And I think that's really uh, a strong characteristic of his filmmaking style. 
That's an interesting point. I not I when you when you begin that I'm like how are you going to catch this the pusher because I don't I find that movie lacking a lot of that kind of aesthetic but that is true it does have that taxi the end of uh, Taxi Driver or mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead bright bright <laughs> red blood um, that is sort of uh, in contrast to the tone of the rest of the movie which um, you know so that that's really fascinating yeah that's interesting and, and I think that plays into another thing that I find interesting about what people sort of criticize him for because he gets he gets criticized for being a violent filmmaker in a lot of ways and i think that there there is violence in the movies and and, but i don't think it's fair criticism because the violence is really few and far between in each of his movies you know when it comes it comes hard like you know the the head stomping scene in drive or um you know uh in pusher like you were saying the guy when he shoots himself but those are just these sort of bursts of violence the rest of the movie is usually pretty meditative and the violence is more implied than anything i think um but he does get i think he does get criticized a lot for you know being this excessively violent filmmaker and i don't i don't know that i necessarily would agree with that 100 percent. of the films i've seen if his only god forgives feels the most Mm -hmm. uh gratuitous and excessive but um but no that's that's definitely true and um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not someone who's bothered by violence right. um, in the context of a crime film mm-hmm. because that's just violence in the context of a crime film. That's just what happens mm-hmm. in those films. Um, and I think I don't think he treats them inappropriately. I don't think he's glorifying anything. So, yeah, I don't think that's really a valid criticism yeah. of him. Um, I think yeah, my main problem, probably my main problem with Pusher uh, is just the, the character, the, main, the lead is probably the least interesting character frank yeah frank he's just sort of i mean and for what the movie is trying to do it's a, it's probably the right choice but it also is yeah it's just not as interesting yeah i mean it's you know he it's it's hard to make a character like that interesting because he's trying to establish an identity for himself mm-hmm. you know he's trying to figure out who he is and he and he wants respect and he wants to be this um like you know he wants to be this tough drug lord but he's another, not a very good drug lord. And that's another theme that uh, that that's another theme that carries out through all the movies is through all of his movies is people trying to uh, self you know self proclaim their own identity. Mm-hmm. They're trying to um, yeah they're they're trying to establish themselves uh, in some kind of way. They're trying to present themselves in a way that maybe they are, maybe they aren't, and mm-hmm. the fluidity of identity yep. to the point where. Uh, like something like only God forgives. There's just no identity. There's none. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, he's kind of like Ryan Gosling's kind of a cipher in drive, but he is nothing in. Well, in drive, I think it's, it serves a really specific purpose right. because I think he's, I, I think Refn is really sort of evoking the, the man with no name archetype yeah. from, you know, the spaghetti Westerns and, um, you know, the character is only known as the kid or the driver. And he's very much, uh, his identity is very much linked to what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in drive, it, it serves a real purpose. Um, I have to see only God forgives again to see if I, if I can come up with a purpose for yeah. that, but I agree with you. He's definitely a cipher in, in that film. But I, but just even the idea that he's a cipher is sort of, uh, it's sort of very pointed in that film mm-hmm. and, and Bronson, of course, um, re- real quick though, I would like to talk about, and this is maybe just something that's my own stupid hang-up or whatever, but is anyone, there's something I find just kind of fundamentally unappealing about European crime films. Has, have you ever, have you encountered, like, there's something about all of the gangsters in, like, Guy Ritchie movies or all of the gangsters in, in Pusher, like, where they're just, 
about the European gangsters. I just find it really unappealing. And I can't figure out exactly what it is. I mean, it's, it could be just they're all just wearing sweatsuits all the time. Well, they're, they're definitely going for an aesthetic. You know, they're, a lot of um, a lot of what these films are sort of doing, and I think Pusher does this really well, especially, is that they're these guys are appropriating this tough guy image that they've seen in uh, you know gangster rap videos, yeah. and they see these you know they see these rappers wearing uh, you know their 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 track suits and their gold chains. Yeah, I think that I think that's that. I think you know what I think you actually just solved it for me. I think <laughs> what I find really uncomfortable about it is that they're all. Um, white people appropriating that <laughs> culture, and that's exactly what as it opposed is. to a lot of crime movies in America, their crime families are based around ethnicity, so they have an identity outside of um, you know movies or whatever. So the gangsters are they are Italian, so yeah. they're doing this Italian thing, or they're they're you know Latino, so they're a Latino gang, so Latino gangs like this, or they're a black gang, and the black gang is, and it sort of comes from uh, different ethnicities and cultures. Yeah, and there's, I mean, especially in, in Denmark, and this is just something that's come out from my research. There, there, there was this notion of the of masculinity being in crisis because you know they they have a very um, long history of of masculinity mm-hmm. in, in Scandinavia due to the you know the Viking culture and things like okay, that. Okay, yeah. But when the when the Danish welfare state came out and it sort of changed the role of what men were doing and you know as, as they far as providers, providers. Things, yeah, yeah. yeah um it sort of stripped them of their identity and one way to have them sort of establish this masculine identity was you know through this pop culture that they were consuming from america and a big part of it was hip-hop culture and that's a really big factor in oh wow this this notion of who the tough guy is over in in denmark especially i mean because i lived over there for a while and when you're over there you walk around and you see a lot of people who are sort of appropriating this, yeah. this identity hmm. that's fascinating yeah. yeah. I know, yeah, I've never thought about that. And I think that really plays itself out in, in Pusher, you know, especially with Frank and Tony, because they, I mean, they listen to mostly metal and punk, it seems, but their their whole look Could is... You, I mean, I, I, I've, I've not seen enough of uh, Lars von Trier's, you know, big filmography to really, to nail it down to one theme or whatever, but do you think, uh, he, he seems to often have things that are about gender and masculinity and stuff. Do you think that's a Danish, that's just a trait of Danish filmmakers? Well, I think, I think it's definitely, uh, I mean, and this is just me, I could be way, way wrong on this, but just from the, the research that I've done and what I've read, it seems like there is this notion of, you know, what does it mean to be a man? What, where, what is our identity supposed to be? Because, and, and it all ties into another quote from Jonathan Romney, who was talking about Pusher 2, he talks about the ending of Pusher 2 when Tony goes off with the baby. And he says, then you look at a movie like Valhalla Rising, which also stars Matt Mickelson, and it feels like some sort of fever dream of Tony's, you know, where he's flashing back to an earlier time before the male, the Danish male degenerated into what he has become. And I think there's this notion, you know, that that we they did lose something somewhere. Uh, and they're, they're trying to reestablish this identity and and you see it happening in the united states now especially after the um after the financial crisis oh, yeah. a few years back you know a lot of men lost their jobs a lot of men found themselves no longer the providers and you're seeing you know this this sort of the, like men's rights activists yeah that stupid movement and stuff but you're seeing a lot of that sort of play itself out here now that men have been sort of decentered from from their positions of power that they used to just take for granted 
That's really fascinating. I, yeah, that's that's I never thought about that way. Um, and that's definitely going to uh, add. <laughs> that's definitely going to add something to Bronson, which is maybe the I, maybe Nicholas Winding Refn's most fascinating uh, exploration of his themes to date. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely. I think for me, Bronson is sort of a modern day Clockwork Orange in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think. Um, especially because of how how Alex in Clockwork Orange was trying to establish his sort of masculine identity through what he did. You've got the character of Michael Peterson doing the same thing uh, in Bronson, but to a much more extreme degree, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, what I found fascinating about it, it also reminded me of a uh, of a Renoir film, uh, Bodu Safe from Drowning. I haven't seen that. Um, it's oh. a it's a film in which this uh, this sort of this vagrant, this like homeless man or whatever, he he starts he tries to drown himself in a river, and this very well to do uh, man saves him and says, "Oh, don't worry about anything. I'm going to take care of you from now on. You're going to be fine." And he's basically trying to just civilize this person, but this person just, and it's about and it's sort of uh, tackling the arrogance of the idea that you can civilize someone. Um, who is just a raging id of, of sorts, and uh, you know he causes all sorts of havoc in, in the family and everything. And in the end, he just he just leaves the family the same, the exact same as when he the way he entered. And to me, Bronson is just like Bronson is, is sort of this uh, much crazier, much uh, <laughs> much more dramatic um, and exciting kind of a version of that, where it's just it's just this id. It's just you. What happened to him? Why is he the way he is? He just is. Yeah. Um, and That's he just the only, it. Um, and it's it, and in that way, it's almost the beginning of the uh, characters that uh, Refn would have that um, almost aren't like that uh, aren't self aware and don't have an identity um, because he's. I mean, he's for to an extent he's forming. You know, he he chooses the name Charles Bronson. Well, he doesn't. Choose, no, he doesn't. He's, he's given. Yeah, that's what he's yeah. given. That's that's true. So he has an identity sort of thrust upon him, even though he's already this, yeah. you know, he, he's made his body sort of into this thing that can, that can allow his id to just rage and he doesn't have to worry about the repercussions because of how he's transformed himself as a human. But then, you know, he, you know, other than Michael Peterson, he doesn't know who he is until he becomes Bronson. Yeah. They, they call him Charlie Bronson and then he starts doing the, the, the underground fighting and that's where he sort of thrives. It almost plays out like a male wish fulfillment kind of fantasy at times, because <laughs> his bigger than life presence just gets amplified. And I think you know, with someone like Tom Hardy, I mean, geez, it, he goes beyond like an impersonation; it just becomes this like almost meta portrayal of the male psyche gone awry in a way. And I think it is, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's definitely the most captivating physical performance mm-hmm. I've seen. Maybe outside of um, uh, um, uh, James Cagney mm-hmm. in Footlight Parade, um, which is a very, very, very different performance, a very different <laughs> kind of movie. But that whole movie, he's running around uh, his company and he's doing crazy dances and he's just screaming at everyone. And I, I always think about that performance in terms of just like, wow, every time someone said action, he had to be constantly moving. Because that's just what that—that's his character in that movie. And in Bronson, that's he. Like you can't fake. Like you can only fake so much fighting, and you can only like he was. You know the ways he's restrained and flailing. Like he must have just been just beaten to hell <laughs> after every day of filming. 
like I like he just uh, I I'm I don't know maybe they got good makeup or what but like I just imagine like he I just imagine him coming home every day from the set with just covered in bruises. <laughs> I, I could definitely see that. I hope his I hope his cock is okay. No, he's just constantly naked, being uh, restrained and battered by people, yeah. and and obviously he is not. He was not literally beaten with bludgeons, uh, you know, throughout the film. But it's still just it's fascinating to watch, and it is just a total transformation to the point where see, this is the first Tom Hardy movie I ever saw, and then when I heard about Tom Hardy being in, I believe, I believe in Inception or whatever, and I saw his picture, I didn't think it was the same guy. I'm like. I thought, oh, it's a different Tom Hardy. That's weird. Well, for me, the first thing I ever saw Tom Hardy in was uh, Star Trek Nemesis, uh-huh. where he yeah. plays he plays the clone of, of Captain Picard. Okay. So he's just this scrawny little bald dude. And then I saw the ads for uh, Bronson uh, and had no idea it was the same guy until I looked on IMDb, and my mind was blown. I thought, that is not the same person. But he he's such a physical chameleon in terms of, you know, what he does for a role because you you know from to go from star trek nemesis to go to be bronson and be this just this monster of a man and then to go from that to something like inception and then you know back to a a monster in both warrior and bane he's just he's he's incredible you know what i like about that part of him i like that he he uh, he's like the unpretentious uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Where the movies he's doing this for, he's not going to win an Oscar. No way in hell Bronson was ever going to get nominated for Oscars. Like that's just not that 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 movie just a hundred percent turn off Oscar audience, you know, Oscar voters and stuff. And Bane, like that was the sequel. That was that was the sort of phoned-in sequel to The Dark Knight. And he fucking oh, I'll just I'll get huge for that. And Star Trek Nemesis, the last. Of the the dying branch that was next generation films, mm-hmm. uh, but he does that. <laughs> I like that he he commits that much to mm-hmm. films that are um, that are not uh, as glorious as mm-hmm. say a There Will Be Blood or a My Left Foot or something like that. And even though his performances are as good, I think mm-hmm. you know in that regard, he's not just the physical transformation, but he's he's such an intense actor. And he's He's so good in terms of sort of just disappearing into the role, um, but like you said, it's it's he's doing it for more sort of mainstream fare, I guess. I don't know if that's the word I want to use, but it's not even mainstream. It's just uh, uh, less, low, not even lowbrow. <laughs> yeah, le- less less pretty. Yeah, less not glamorous. prestigious. Yeah, yeah, less prestigious. Um, and and I and I think. It's really the right. It was really the right choice because this could be. I mean, it's it's a character that's just a raging id. Mm-hmm. And if you got a uh, someone who's a huge guy who's just a good enough actor, it probably could have. You know, it could you could have told that story. But because he is like one of the most beautiful men mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the most charming men yep. ever, who becomes this monster, there's still that glint. Like every time, especially whenever it comes to him, the sort of the abstract sequences where he's performing for an audience, yeah. like there's this glint in his eye where he's so, and it, he gets away with being, he's able to be so charming and so scary and monstrous at the same time. Um, it's really remarkable. He's like a right, and I, star at that point, which I think is yeah. really great. I love the theatricality of it all. And I think this might be his funniest movie too. <laughs> like there's some really funny stuff in here. Uh, oh, the Pet yeah, Shop Boys dance sequence in the mental institution cracks mm-hmm. me up. <laughs> so I, w- I wanted to ask you something about that 
Chris. Um, what do you so especially these later movies? Um, but there's still um, I, I, at least the two pusher films I saw. There's it was more the uh, kind of trance um, and metal that you associate with Europe. <laughs> um, but like, so is, is later latter day films have uh, especially you know that's one of the main reasons it got popular. Drive is def- are defined by their sort of eighties soundtracks and their it's just the whole did the yeah and their whole well yeah and but and also just they're embracing yeah. all this sort of eighties. Um, new wave pop dance music. Mm-hmm. How do you think that? Uh, do you? I mean, other than the fact that it's just something that Nicholas uh, Van den Werfen likes to do, like what do you, what do you think about it? Is about that music that is compelling to him, and how does that tie into his movies? Well, I think there's a couple things to that actually, um, and part of it, you know, going back to the time when I was over there, which was 2010, there was a big 80s boom okay at that time i mean in, so it is just part terms, of the zeitgeist over there that's part of it yeah i mean it's it's part of the national landscape you know in terms of fashion and music it was really big but i think part of what the appeal for refin is uh you know he's he's like especially with drive he was very much trying to evoke this this sort of 1980s masculine aesthetic thief. yeah well thief <laughs> in particular uh, you know um but but overall you know, it goes back to his his themes of masculinity because um, the 1980s, especially in America, were the time when we were remasculinizing after the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the presidency of, of Jimmy Carter and, and men were sort of seen to have become, and this is not my term, but this is some of the scholars' terms, but men were seen to have become feminized mm-hmm. at that time. And so when Ronald Reagan became president in the 80s, uh, he signaled, you know, it's, it's morning in America, and, and we're we're gonna, you know, reestablish where, what we're supposed to be in terms of the national stage. Uh, so there was this real uh, uh, movement to sort of become manly again, and I think with Drive, especially, Refn was sort of tapping into that masculine aesthetic of the 1980s because that was the time. When you know you saw the rise of Sylvester Stallone, you saw the rise of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, and he's not making the same kinds of movies. But I really think he's trying to comment on that type of of extreme hyper masculinity in a yeah, lot of ways. He's, but I, he's interested in the archetypes for sure. Like even just mm-hmm. the, it has a fairy tale kind of quality to it, and yet um, I rewatched it with my roommate, who was like, "Man, this this almost looks like a." You know, it could be a comic book superhero kind of a story. And I oh, think, and he's and he's uh, yeah. Refn has come right out and said that that's his superhero movie. Okay, yeah, and yeah. I I got that a sense like maybe the second or third time I saw it, but I was just I mean maybe it is because I grew up in that era and I love new wave electronic music and I obviously love Thief and I, I think all the films that inspired this you know are really kind of the best of that genre and he just managed to make it his own at the same time mm-hmm. I, I remember just like from the opening credits I'm like sold with dri- everything with Drive like even if people say oh you know he's kind of just borderline autistic and not really a compelling lead I think that's really a lot more interesting I, I find that's, yeah, that's awkward a- pauses really cool I find yeah, Ryan Gosling being on, and I that was definitely immediately when after I saw it, I'm like, oh, he's autistic. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my my girlfriend at the time, her brother uh, is her younger brother, severely autistic, and it was just 
And it definitely, th- those pauses and stuff definitely felt, that was definitely how I read that movie. And it, which is why it cracked me up that it was, um, that it was uh, embraced by the mainstream as cool. Mm. As, oh, every, it's just about how cool it is. And, and, and it definitely did become sort of a, a cultural touchstone in terms of, of cool. Um, I, I, I think, though, and, and I, I think, you know, it's one of my very favorite movies. And I think this whole notion of the, char- the character being autistic is definitely a valid reading of the film in a lot of ways. Um, in fact, one of, the, one of my favorite uh, images on the Internet was um, it's the scene... Uh, when Ryan Gosling is talking to um, uh, what's the woman's name again? Um, Carrie Mulligan. Yes, Carrie Mulligan. When he's talking to her character for the first time, she said, "You know, they, somebody laid it out like a comic strip." Right. And you've got her in the first panel asking him a question, and then you've got like five panels of him just not saying anything, and then he's like, <laughs> and then he just goes, "Yeah." And then the last panel is just real human. <laughs> and but I think that the 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 pauses. Again, it sort of ties into this idea of of masculinity and identity because with the driver, and I don't know how much we want to get into drive right now, but with the driver, you know, he's like I said, he's definitely tapping into this archetypal uh, man with no name type character, and it's almost the reverse of Reffin's other films, where you've got a lot of characters who are trying to establish a masculine identity. You have with the driver, you have a character who is who is a masculine archetype who's trying to establish a human identity. Right. And hmm. he's like, it's like he's going through his mind, like what would a real person say in this situation? Because, yeah. because he's, he's like, he transcends regular, you know, just human masculinity and stuff. And he has to try to come back down into the realm of real people, which mm-hmm. is why I think the song, you know, the real, real hero, real human being is such a big part of the film. Yeah, I mean, that's just, when, that's, when he does explode in a conversation, it's very economical. Like mm-hmm. the way he words conversations, it's almost like rehearsed or something. Yeah, and I find the, I, I find his character just really interesting because how often does this type of character come? You know, like having an introverted protagonist is always interesting, but on top of that, exploring those archetypes you talk about and having it reflect like a perception of masculinity and how he's struggling with it. And maybe like mm-hmm. his catharsis through violence is like him responding to, you know, the societal portrayal of masculinity. Like you can sort of well, look I mean, at it that way. If, yeah. And if you, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. If you watch like drive and, and uh, the uh, Walter Hilton movie driver, like next to each other, it's fascinating how those two are coded as far mm-hmm. as that. Like Ryan O'Neill is coded as, Awesome. Mm-hmm. Badass man with no name, gets things done, and the reason he doesn't talk is because he doesn't need to talk. Yeah. He's, um, he's action over words. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, uh, which is the 70s. Yeah. Like that's, that is the, you know, that was, that's that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also that, that's also Walter Hill. That's that mm-hmm. filmmaker. Um, whereas, uh, in, a, you know, Drive in, in the 21st century, the way that is coded is just entirely different. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it really fascinating that. Uh, and really, really good that he is a smart enough filmmaker that he can, you know, recognize that and not, and I, I really do. Yeah. Like I think something like only God forgives is really dumb. <laughs> like my problem with something like only God forgives, it doesn't work on a basic level of no one feels like no one in the movie feels like human beings. Like no one, like it's just, and it's, 
it's not compelling or whatever, but like, I don't find it, the story compelling because I don't, because it's just, it's just this weird inevitable slide. And you have nothing to latch on to. You have right. nothing to latch on to. And it's just, and it's the slow motion of drive extended way, way, way more. Mm-hmm. But, um, where's the um, humanity? Yeah. I was, uh, you know, that's, I mean, I guess but I, but expectations I, too, coming from drive to that Ryan Gosling, like, I feel like I can latch on to a lot in Drive. Only God Forgives just yeah. felt like I was oh, on yeah. the outside looking in through most but I of think it. One of the things, and this is just something that I want to just interject, but like you talked about the humanity, and I think I actually think that Gosling's character in Drive is slightly less human than he is in Only God Forgives. I would, I would agree with that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he's in, in Drive, he's almost indestructible. Yeah. And he's almost infallible in a lot of ways. Again, it's, you know, he's this, he's this larger than life archetype. Well, yeah, what's fascinating, he's, he's indestructible and infallible in all the ways that you would think would matter in a crime film. Right. But not in, not in a romantic way. Right. That's where all of his flaws are. Boy, and, and like you were talking about how, how this type of character is coded differently in the, in the modern yeah. era than it was in the 1970s. Um, but, I think the big difference is that, you know, if you look at the 1970s or even before that, because we've always had this sort of ideal of the, the strong, silent type, who, you know, the guy who lets his actions speak louder than words and all this stuff. And I think the driver really ties into that. But in the 1970s, you know, you would often see this sort of, particularly in the 1980s, I think let's, let's look more like the 1980s, this type of character would always be triumphant at the end. And while at the end of Drive, you know, the driver triumphs over the Albert Brooks character, he still drives off alone and he's not able to be with Carrie Mulligan's character and her son. You know, the whole thing, the whole movie is him trying to regain his humanity through her and her son and he fails at that because of how powerful and how uh, hyper-masculine he is. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, that, that sort of speaks volumes in the elevator moment. Where mm-hmm. she, you know, she's she's sort of like embodying innocence and standing back and seeing him explode that way is just too too jarring. It's just you know, I think it's something that she couldn't handle. Like she couldn't right. handle and, that catharsis. Yeah, and he even acknowledges the fact that that this is not good for her because he just he kisses her goodbye right before that. Yeah. You know, exactly. that, that kiss is, it's a, it's a kiss that was long coming, but it's also him basically saying goodbye to his humanity. Yeah, and I, 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 it's definitely, I think we're saying that even, yeah, and what I, what I was trying to start again with Only God Forgives is, even with all that, I think anyone who says that, oh, he's just trying to make movies that are look cool, and he's just, he's just concerned with cool stuff, and he's just trying to be hip or whatever, and he's just trying to ape the, you know, 80s aesthetic or whatever, and he's just, like... Yeah, that's. I feel like that criticism holds no water. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's all. That's that's all there. Yeah, but it's all sort of surface stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more complexity going on, you know, beneath the surface. Like even with Bronson, you know, getting back to Bronson, you were talking about how he's just this sort of raging id. But I think those the theater scenes that you were talking about, where they, you know he's he's on stage and he's addressing the audience, sort of highlights the complexity of the character because. Um, you know, just the very act that the very fact that he's on stage, um, you know, that could be considered to be sort of a feminine uh, activity, you know, the acting and all this stuff. And then there's the bit where like Jim referenced at the beginning where he's painted half 
man and half woman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of showing that there's there's something beyond just this raging masculinity that you know we all have this these two sides within us. Yeah, well, I, 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 the way I, the way I, in that, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The way I read Bronson in that movie is the is that he's basically like a dog who mm-hmm. learned that he gets attention if he bites someone. Yeah, um, that's and a good way so, to put it, actually. Yeah, and and so you know he is so he gets happy when he has opportunities to bite people, and he gets sad when he has uh, when they put him on the drugs, and he is catatonic and he can't bite anyone. Yeah. Um, well, he almost been you know. Just getting Freudian for a second here. It's almost like he's been castrated at that point. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's restricting his his only form of sort of pleasurable pleasurable expression for mm-hmm. himself, which is to be violent. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, you know, he's been just completely reined in, and he's been completely stripped of his masculinity. In that Wait, and, and that does actually that is something else that I think is also um, a little more subtle, not not as overt and drive, but there's this. Very, but the first time I saw Bronson, um, the main thing I walked away from was that feeling that it was uh, sort of a sadomasochistic movie. Um, and there's there's something really interesting about the. I, I find Drive is maybe a little similar in the way it it's sort of like like the the velvet red box with the knives in it, like it, it in and the and the the sort of the connection between sex and violence, and it feels it it feels very. Um, Interest, uh, the sadomasochistic elements of those movies really fascinate me, um, and especially the way that, especially in Drive, because that red box with the razor blades in it, I think, is a direct uh, reference or take off of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm. Uh, as we as we talked uh, to uh, Gabe Powers yet, uh, last episode about Mario Bava, well, um, when he was on for our Dario Argento episode, that was when Drive had just come out, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, I think it was Bird with Crystal Plumage. There's a scene where someone opens a red velvet box and pulls out an implement and murders. And all those Giallo films have the similar um, obsession with color and a similar um, mix of sex and violence and stuff like that. So that's another um, sort of an interesting thing that he's taking. Like he, his films definitely do not feel like he's only drawing from American uh, references. Oh no, 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 not at all. I mean, he's he's very much a globalized filmmaker. Yeah, and and he's really drawing his influences from, from all over the place. I mean, I think you can just see that in the settings of his films. You know, Bronson is, in, is set in uh, Britain, and you've got only God Forgives set in uh, Thailand. Yeah. Um, I really think that, that and I mean, even if you look at, like, I know you didn't watch Pusher 3, but there are so many cultures sort of clashing in that film. And I think that's part of because of, you know, he's very much, aware that the world is becoming, you know, slowly but surely it's becoming sort of globalized and a lot of national borders are sort of breaking down these days. And I think he's, his films are starting to sort of reflect that. Um, I'm trying to, uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about Bronson? I would say my only, the only reason I would not, like, the only reason I don't have out and out love Bronson is that as a story, it's, like a lot of his films, actually, now that I think about it, like, it's, it feels so inevitable. Yeah. It's <laughs> that, almost episodic in that way, and it's not, like, yeah. driven by narrative. But uh, the climax, it, it's not necessarily, you know, a, a great, huge climax where, he, you know, he paints the man and he sort of um, does his art for a while. I would agree with um, that. Like, it's the only time I think the pacing kind of slows down, too. And it's it's just a it's a film where... 
the, the actual story itself is not as compelling as the themes, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's still a great movie, but it's, it's, uh, I, it's, it's not as narratively driven. And I, and I think that, you know, that inevitability that you point to, um, aside from being sort of important for my thesis, <laughs> there's, you know, he's, he's looking at this type of masculinity as being a negative thing. So by having the characters sort of experience all of these negative consequences at the end, it's one way of, of sort of illustrating that that this isn't something that is sustainable within a, like a societal or an individual context. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, and, and, and I really like the I like the very ending of Bronson specifically for that reason because it's that great image of him, you know, and, and he represents this sort of hypermasculine. Uh, aggressive, violent type of, of, of identity, and he's caged in this tiny little, you know, cell that's barely big enough for his, his bulging body. And then they put him in a room and shut the yeah. doors on that room, as if to say, "Well, we're just going to put this away over here." So, so actually, I'm a little interested, um, and maybe I tend to read, um, uh, maybe I tend to read endings as more ambiguously happy than most people. <laughs> but I, I thought that ending might have been a victory for for the main character. In a way, I, I agree with you, too. Because they didn't win. They, yeah. He won, like, literally the only thing they could do, like, he remained himself throughout the whole thing, and the whole movie is them trying to change him and trying to, uh, and trying to subvert his tendencies into, well, you could be an artist. There's lots of uh, emotionally disturbed artists, and if you could just take these, you know, you take these compulsions you have and uh, these fascinating art, you could be an outsider artist, and you go to galleries, and, stuff, and that that's sort of, that's the way that, uh, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that people try to civilize uh, people with severe mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Well, they're very artistic. Yeah. And, but in the end, it's, they, he rejects all of that. And mm-hmm. it's, nope, I win. I am who I am. And I think, I think you got, you, you're definitely onto something with that. But I, at the same time, I also think there's a part of him that knows that he needs to be like contained away mm-hmm. from the rest of society because his type of, of masculinity is not good for that. That's why he, he gets himself thrown back in prison, you know, because there's that, that stretch in the middle of the movie where he, where he's released from prison and uh, he, he can't really function out there. He doesn't, you know, fit in with anyone. He doesn't really know how to come, how to, how to comport himself in public. So he immediately goes out and robs a jewelry store and gets himself thrown back in prison because I think he knows like there's a little part of him that knows that's where he belongs, and that's where his his type of violence and aggression but is it that he that's where he's going to get the most attention. I think if his name is the most like he's proud of being the most you know uh, the, the Daily Post or whatever saying the most da- the most dangerous criminal, yeah. uh, the most arrested man or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and he, he is it is it that he realizes that that is something that is bad for the rest of humanity, or is it just he? He's thinking about him because I um, honestly I do think it's maybe a little ambiguous as to how much of a sociopath he is yeah. or how much empathy he is because you he never really um, does horribly violent acts on uh, just civilians. Yeah, or, or even like there's that one prison guard from the library who he sort of torments, yeah. but he never really hurts or is violent. Towards. And even he, he and even the guy the, that uh, jewelry store I think doesn't he. I don't think he no, threatens them. I, yeah, because it's a woman that is behind the counter, and he just like screams at her. A few yeah. Times. Oh, okay. 
Um, and and even the and even the person that he murders in in the psychiatric ward mm-hmm. in order to get thrown back into a real prison, that person is a pedophile. Yeah, <laughs> like it, they make they make they make pain to say, "Don't worry, it's not an innocent person getting strangled; it's a pedophile mm-hmm. who um, thinks he's sane, but it still wants to fuck ten year old girls." Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, no, I think I definitely think you have something. I think there's there's a little from column A and a little from column B, yeah. and and like you said, there's that ambiguity. You just kind of read it either way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know. I know we've talked on and on about Drive, but uh, and only God forgives. Uh, do you have any other films you'd want to? Well, definitely, uh, real quick, Bleeder, because mm-hmm. um, I mean, I I think I might have even reviewed it at some point on this show because I discovered it. Uh, after Drive and was really taken with it. If, if I had seen this when it first came out, I probably would have been like, you know what, fuck clerks and swingers. <laughs> here's here's what the male psyche can really be like. Um, and it's, you know, it, it has different shades of male insecurity portrayed by like three different, or four different guys actually. And like one of them is really socially awkward and has trouble going up to a girl and then uh, one of them, the same guy plays Frank um, in, in Pusher, he has this uncertainty of commitment and fatherhood, uh, and I, I really like the opening, the way he makes every character distinctive with their own music, um, and it, it just feels more like a really interesting character study that doesn't get too bogged down in plot. Uh, it's like if Refn did Diner or something, you know? And it has like we mentioned some very intense violent sequences towards the end for you know kind of justifiable but morally questionable reasons but um it might be just a tad bit dated in terms of its kind of train spotting aesthetic but i i really responded to this one emotionally more than most of his films probably because i could identify with different characters at different times yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you uh, in terms of that. Um, the character that you mentioned, who is very socially awkward, that's Matt Mickelson again, mm-hmm. um, who's who's playing. Uh, was it is it Benny? Is that the character's name? I think so. Because yeah. all of the characters, all the main characters' names start with L, which is very uh, <laughs> a, a sort of an interesting little quirk. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely. You know, it fits in with these themes that he seems to be obsessed with, you know, in terms of masculinity and identity and uh, things like that. Because the, the the lead character who's played by uh, Kim Bodnia, who played Frank in mm-hmm. Pusher, um, you know, he's he's on the verge of fatherhood. He doesn't know that he can handle it. Um, you know, he doesn't know who he is anymore because, you know, his girlfriend keeps moving his stuff and sort of taking away who he is and... You know, he's, he's really struggling with this new identity of, of fatherhood that that is sort of being thrust upon him. Yep. Um, and then you've got and then you've got the Mass Mickelson character. I think it's Lenny, um, who is you know, like you said, he's very socially awkward, and he's he's not sure how to uh, uh, respond to women. There's that there's that bit where Leo, the the, the guy played by Cambodia, sort of calls him out for just wanting to talk to women. And he's like, that's not how you treat women. That's not what you do with women. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a much more low key sort of character study as opposed to the more sort of stylized, um, you know, over the top types of films that he would do later on. 
but it's definitely got all of the same themes and and concerns going on within it. So I think it, it's a really it's a really interesting little one off from him. Right. Um, that that I agree is it's probably his most emotionally affecting film. Right. I agree. And if you're a film nerd, you'll love the video store scene. That the yeah. Movie. I mean, it, it's it's great because, like you said, it does feel like Clerks, and then halfway through, it just becomes this. Or not even halfway through, like the climax of the film is just this violent sort of gunfight. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it definitely sort of does what Clerks did, just in a much more introspective, thoughtful manner. I mm-hmm. think. Um, I've seen. I, I was looking at the credits. Um, both Bronson and Drive were co-written mm-hmm. by other people. Um, yeah. You, at, uh, and Valhalla Rising as well had a lot of different writers. Um, do you see a difference between the films that are purely uh, uh, Reffin and, and the ones where he's collaborating with other writers? Well, if I remember correctly, like the Pusher films were pretty... I think those were all just written by Reffin. The and first film has another credited writer. Does it have another credit? The other two are just him. Then it's just him. Um, well, I, I think that his later films you know, starting with Valhalla Rising and, and then going on to drive and Only God Forgives, feel more like Pusher 2 and Pusher 3 than any of the other movies, than, than either Pusher or Bleeder or Bronson. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely think that even though he's got co-writers on you know, Valhalla Rising and, and all the rest, that his sort of authorial voice or whatever you want to say sort of asserts itself yeah. more than anything Particularly, and this may, I may be way off on this, but particularly because the films are so, there's such minimal dialogue in them that his sort of stylistic tics assert themselves more than than the story does. Um, So that could be part of why they feel that way. But I I really feel like Pusher 2 and Pusher 3, especially Pusher 3, are kind of, a dry run for the things that he did, you know, starting with the Hollow Rising mm-hmm. and going from there. Right. Um, because they're what? I agree completely. Oh, okay. Um, there's definitely this sort of minimalist, um, just really long pauses, very little dialogue. Um, you know, you've got these characters, these, these characters in the lead who are trying to uh, sort of establish their identities in the face of all these sort of um, uh, things that are happening to them. And, and um, it, it definitely feels like there's a thematic through line between, or at least a stylistic through line between Pusher, Pusher 2, Bahala Rising, and the rest. Yeah. Um, more so than with Drive, Bronson, or Bleeder, which all sort of feel like they're standalone things oh, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I got to say real quick, before we wrap up, uh, Fear X is just. I, oh yeah, I, forgot I know about it's Fear got. Its, <laughs> I know it's got its defenders. I it was just way too slow. It was like molasses. I just could not. I I couldn't get invested into it. I was like really excited because I'm like obviously John Turturro and a score by Brian Eno and it's mm-hmm. one of my you know new favorite directors I just discovered and I just did not get anything out of it other than. That's some cool visuals. That's about it. <laughs> and I think in some cases, in, in the cases of some films, I think that's enough to carry it. Sure. I don't 
I don't necessarily think that's the case with Fear X, but I think there's so much interesting stuff going on beneath all that sort of stylistic excess that it it's, it becomes a movie that may not be a good movie, but I think it's worth like worth sort of just seeing it just to, to you know make up your own mind on it for one thing because I ended up I I actually kind of liked it. Um, I'm not going to be one of those people who defends it as some sort of great movie or a lost classic or anything, but I definitely think it's, it's worth, um, it's worth seeing. Yeah. Because like I said, if you're having trouble sleeping, (laughs) but like I said, Jim calling a movie boring burn. But I think the stylistic, uh, things that he's doing in there are, are really interesting, especially in, in light of what his later films would sort of turn into. Um, you can sort of see the genesis of a, lot, of a lot of what he's done since in Fear X. And also just some of the, the nods to like Stanley Kubrick sure. uh, that he's bringing into that film, uh, especially the, the scenes of the hotel, which really mm. sort of evoke, evoke the overlook and especially the scene with the elevators uh, opening up to reveal the blood coming in. There's a couple of shots oh, yeah. that really yeah, evoke was, that. I was definitely impressed by that, for sure. Yeah. So I think just in terms of the visual palette, it's it's worth a look. Well, I'm really excited for whatever he does next, next, and next, next. <laughs> then it says he's going to do a horror film next. Yes, yeah. with Carrie Mulligan, so yes. I'm, I'm totally on board. Supposedly mm-hmm. with, like, all women in the cast, I believe. Well, that'd be a huge departure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How's that? Um, very so, cool. yeah, I'm, I'm, he's a very interesting, he's a very interesting director. I, I couldn't, I couldn't call him one of my favorites, but he definitely makes movies that we're talking about mm-hmm. and are, are very interesting. Um, and he's made some very, very good ones. Yeah. I wouldn't put him up there with, you know, a Paul Thomas Anderson, but I still think he's making incredibly original movies. And yet, you know, having them uh, a part of certain archetypes and genres that I find really interesting to deconstruct and clearly drive just hit on like some kind of zeitgeist at the time it came out. And to this day, I still think it's really like just this interesting obstacle course of fairy tale and myth. And uh, I don't know, more and more I watch it, the more and more I appreciate it. And I know why people kind of aren't on board with it but I'm I'm just I'm just a fan of him through and through and I'm really excited to follow his career even further. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you on that. I I he has really become one of my very favorite filmmakers and like you said I wouldn't put him up there with with guys like Paul Thomas Anderson but he's I think he's doing something completely different and mm-hmm. what he's doing he's definitely one of the best at and even if you don't like his movies and I completely understand why someone wouldn't like his movies. Um, but even if you don't like them, he's, he's probably one of the most interesting and original voices um, sort of working today, I think. Uh, so in that regard, I really believe that he's, he's an important filmmaker and he's somebody that, that deserves to be at least looked at and, and seen, even if you don't, if come away enjoying what you've seen. Agreed. So, so I know you've written, you're writing your thesis on um, him. Are you we're going to write a book? <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I, I'm waiting to hear back from a publisher. Uh, there is a publisher, uh, it's Bloomsbury Press, and they have a sub 
uh, organization, or what, I don't know what the name is, but a, a publisher underneath them called Continuum, and they're doing a series of, of books on contemporary filmmakers. Uh-huh. Um, and I pitched uh, an idea for a volume on Refn because it's, it's just going to be an edited series uh, with different authors contributing. Uh, the first book in the series, I think, is on uh, was on uh, Peter Jackson, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Um, so I'm just waiting to hear back from the publisher right now as to whether or not it's a go. The people who looked at the proposal said it was really good. They think it's it's got a lot of merit. Um, mm-hmm. But we're just waiting to find out if if it's actually going to be picked up or not. Yeah, well, that's exciting. Great. Um, do you uh, do you write for any sites currently? Uh, well, not currently. Uh, right now, while I'm in grad school, it's just a little too. My workload is a little too hard. To, to manage with writing stuff. But I'm still technically um, associated with Clearance Bin Review right now. Um, and I generally write two columns there. I write um, a column called Great Moments in Cinema and then another one called Cinematic Soulmates where I talk about movies that make great double or triple features. And um, those are just on hiatus for the time being while I'm in grad school. Um, hopefully will, I will get those back up and running after, after I uh, get done with this master's program. Awesome. Awesome. Um, uh, so what is, what we got to give our top three real quick here. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, Jim, what's your top three? My top three are drive Bronson bleeder. I guess I just like the one word Nicholas one <laughs> movies. Uh, Chris? Well, uh, Drive is my number one. Um, I think Bronson would probably be number two, and Valhalla Rising would be my third. I, I really love that movie, um, especially I like how it... I, 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 I love it because of how it sort of evokes both Tarkovsky and mm-hmm. um, Werner Herzog in a lot yeah. of ways. And, I, but, but then, I can see that, yeah. But then it sort of does its own thing. Mm-hmm. And then my, my top three, probably number one would be Bronson. Uh, number two would be Drive, and the number three would be Pusher Two. Um, yeah, Pusher Two is great. It's definitely, I think, of the trilogy, that's probably the the best mm-hmm. of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, you cool. can find us directorsclubpodcast.com. dot com. Yeah, send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Chris couldn't appreciate your presence, and uh, really, really look forward to having you on again. It was great talking with Could you. you- Wait, you couldn't appreciate his presence more. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Which you could yeah. appreciate, but uh, you know what? You're just yeah, not for me. I'm, yeah, I'm just going to be indifferent. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your indifference, and uh, I, I just thank you guys for letting me on. This is yeah, great. Yeah, I'm really a good time. effort, Chris. Thanks. <laughs> thank no, this, is, this is outstanding. I'm, I'm, I was happy to have you on. We'd love to have you back. Um, uh, anytime, just let me know. I'm, I'm always up for this. This is a really good time. And Even if you um, have to drive through a hurricane to get to Patrick's. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, real quick, have you played? Uh, have you played or seen Hotline Miami? I have seen it. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll show. Like I'll, I can show it to you right after uh, we're done recording. And um, next episode is going to be on Miyazaki. Ooh, cool! So oh, I know right. all you guys have a lot of strong opinions about Miyazaki. He's the internet's favorite <laughs> for good reason. He's a utter delight, and apparently he's retiring. Last film uh, coming out soon, uh, so I think we're going to do uh, Spirited Away and maybe one of his earlier films. I'm in over my head with him. I've only seen a, a handful. Yeah. Um, I like everything I've seen, but I couldn't tell you what the two seminal ones are. We would do, but we'll figure it out. And okay. do we have a do we have a guest yet? I think it's Brian Tallarico. Oh, excellent, Brian yeah. Tallarico. You heard him on the uh, Alfonso Corona episode, right? Very excited for that episode. Yeah. Um. 
You can find me on Twitter at Instant Gym and Letterboxd at Instant Gym as well. And I'm on Twitter at Patrick Paul, and my viewing journal, which is only updated sporadically, uh, sorry for that, is uh, MarthaMarcyNashandYoung.wordpress.com. Great. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for the Miyazaki episode. Goodbye. Bye. fight.